0: Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Specialist 6, Lawrence Joel. Joel was a medic serving at the 1st Battalion 503rd Infantry Regiment, part of the 173rd Airborne Brigade, early in the Vietnam War. Specifically, we're going to talk about actions on November 8th, 1965. That's right at the beginning of America's conventional military commitment in the conflict. So to back up and talk Vietnam at a high level, you know this is a direct result of the end of the Second World War. We're going to see by 1954, a split between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. It's going to be right in the midst of the Cold War. Inevitably, you're going to have a One faction, North Vietnam, backed and supported by the communist powers of the day, the Soviet Union, China, and others. And then South Vietnam, because this is the Cold War, you got to be on one side or the other. South Vietnam, backed, supported, and protected in a sense, maybe, by the Western-style democracies. Important to our story, namely, the United States. Now, from 1954 to 1960, you're going to see a pretty much Vietnamese war there's not going to be the international involvement at scale that we'll see later in the conflict that we think of as the United States in terms of the Vietnam War. The French are going to be heavily involved from 45 until 54. From 54 to 60, you're going to see a a pretty sizable insurgency, maybe is the right term, in South Vietnam. This is going to be an attempt by North Vietnam to reunite the country on their terms. And you know, one of the ways they're going about doing this is to, you know, it's a people's rebellion, right? This communism—we're we're fighting for the people—and they're able to infiltrate pretty easily because remember, they just we just drew this line in 1954 and said, now you're either in the south or you're in the north. So there's a lot of relationships that cross that border that, that we can't stop. There's a lot of families that are divided. There's there's a history that's divided, a culture that's divided. It's easy to see how it's not that hard to win support. From people on one side of this, you know, demilitarized zone, or the other, that's gonna be a big part, especially in the rural areas of South Vietnam, from nineteen uh, fifty-four to nineteen sixty. In fact, during that window, you're gonna see China kind of um, encourage restraint by the North Vietnamese. They don't really want an all-out war. You know, we're kind of thinking maybe South Vietnamese maybe South Vietnam is weak enough. That just exerting influence with an insurgency in the South is going to be enough to turn the entire country, you know, reunify on, on North Vietnamese terms. By 1960, this really starts to get the attention of the United States. Now, we have advisors there. We have CIA personnel, that, personnel there for a long period of time. But it's really by 1960 and 61 that we start to think, hey, our buddies there in South Vietnam might not be able to hold on by themselves, So you're going to start to see an increase in American involvement. Now, at the start of the show, I said 1965 is the start of the Americans' Americans conventional military commitment to the conflict. And there's going to be a difference there because for a long period of time, it's going to be predominantly special operations forces working in Vietnam. Very closely tied in with the CIA, but it's going to be helping to train and empower and, and supply at times South Vietnamese forces to push back and expel these Viet Cong or North Vietnamese soldiers from their country. So the Viet Cong are going to be an insurgent group. That is the irregular force that's going to be fighting in South Vietnam. They they still generally follow traditional military structure, um, but they're going to be heavily recruited from or entirely made up of people in South Vietnam. Part of the idea here is these are insurgents. They can blend back in with a population it's not necessarily going to be soldiers that that live and their families are in North Vietnam coming down to fight in the South. The Viet Cong, generally speaking, are going to be made up of people from South Vietnam or at the very least, residents of North Vietnam that come down and kind of take up, um, take up their positions as a Viet Cong fighter in South Vietnam. So they're going to live there as a guerrilla fighter. Now, by 1965 we're starting to see the war expand right at the beginning of 1965. And it's understandable looking back how this happens. And this is a common critique of the Vietnam War is that there was this mission creep, that we just kept adding troops that we just, maybe we didn't know what we were getting into. But if you step back and look at it, if we say that we're going to be able to win a conflict in six months, are the American people more willing to do that? If we say we can do this without losing a soldier on the extreme end, more people are going to sign off on that and say, let's go. But if we say, hey, I need you American people to sign here for an open-ended conflict, could take five years, could take 20, could take a million troops or more. We don't know when we're going to win. By the way, it's in a place called Vietnam. You know where that is. I just don't think you're going to get the support that you need. And I genuinely think that the interests at the, at, you know, Throughout this conflict, I think people making these decisions had America's best interest in mind, but I think it's, it's fair to say at some point we got so far in that we didn't necessarily know how to work our way out of it or what victory might even look like, right? So all of that to say that in early 1965, General Westmoreland is going to be the American commander in Vietnam, and he's going to come up with this three-phase plan. Now, by early 1965, we have conventional troops on the ground. There should be about 3,000 Marines that end up on the ground. They're sent to Vietnam to protect air bases. It's primarily an air war in terms of major American commitment in the early 60s. But those planes need a place to land, to refuel, to rearm. Um, we need a place to go rescue down pilots should that happen. So it's kind of, the idea, is a purely defensive position. We have to defend this air base. But We're not great at that. We're not great at just sitting back in a purely defensive posture. And just sitting inside a wire watching your perimeter isn't necessarily a great defense either. General Westmoreland is going to come up with a three-phase plan that generally says we're going to stop the progress of North Vietnam and the Viet Cong. Then we're going to destroy all the enemy forces. And if they're not all killed or or you know, expelled in the first 12 to 18 months, and we'll push it a little further into the countryside if need be. That was in 1965. So in 1965, he's saying, don't worry, we should be able to take care of this in 12 months. If we don't, then we'll move on in the next phase of the war, right? But I can understand how that happens. Again, if you're looking for commitment, if you need buy-in, it's much easier to say that. How long do you need these troops for? 12 to 18 months. How long do you need... Resplice for 12 to 18 months. Um, There's an end in sight right now. It's an arrogant view. But again, I can see how that would happen, right? We're looking at these, these Viet Cong guerrilla fighters in the jungle saying, Hey, we've got American air power. We've got aircraft carriers off the coast. We've got the Marines. We've got the 173rd airborne brigade. Don't worry. We can take care of this pretty quickly. Nonetheless, the American defensive posture in 1965, generally speaking, is not going to be well implemented as is. And part of the reason for that is a good defense doesn't just mean putting up barbed wire and sitting in guard towers because the enemy can come and, and strike whatever they want, right? That doesn't really help your cause. There needs to be some form of pushing out to, you know, maybe you're pursuing the enemy after an attack. Maybe you're pursuing the enemy before an attack to mitigate the chances that they come in from one angle or another, or maybe you set up an ambush to wait for those attackers to come because they hit every Tuesday night. And you can see how just sitting inside the wire, watching these approaches for the enemy fighters. Now you're pursuing. Now you're an extra mile out preventing. And then you see their supply lines. You got to hit those supply lines. They can't drop those mortars on you the next week. And it goes and it goes and it goes. And each step by itself makes sense. And when we step back at a high level, we can see, holy cow, by 1967, 68, we blink and we've got half a million troops in that country flying all over Vietnam in search and destroy missions to find and kill Viet Cong and North Vietnamese soldiers. Holy cow, that happened fast. Well, to back up a little bit to 1965, one of the first units that we're going to send, the first, you know, major Um, conventional unit, full conventional unit that that we're going to see in Vietnam is going to be the 173rd Airborne Brigade. They're going to end up, they're going to be in Vietnam in May of 1965. And there is discussion, comments made in May that they might be home by Christmas. And as we've seen in how many of these stories, whenever a military commander says home by Christmas or home by the new year, just big grain of salt. Again, we want to be able to say it's human nature. We want to see that there's an end in sight. It makes it so much easier. Think of it when you're out running. If you know you're only running for a mile, that's so much easier than you're just going to kind of run and you don't know how long it's going to be. So anyways, 173rd Airborne Brigade arrives in Vietnam in May of 1965 with the North Star potentially of coming home by December. Now, a few months into that deployment, we're going to get to November of 1965 and you continue to see this push further and further out from these American air bases that originally were being protected. That didn't last long because again, it doesn't take very long to say we need to actually push outside the wire and start taking the fight to the enemy. We can't just sit here and take it. And that was part of Westmoreland's plan, right? It wasn't just to sit and take the attacks. It was to, in a sense, say, stand aside, South Vietnam. We're going to destroy your enemy. And once they're destroyed, we'll hand this back to you. Didn't prove to be the best strategy, but by November of 1965, that's kind of where we sit. We are absolutely in the midst of the search and destroy, go go kill as many Viet Cong and North Vietnamese fighters as we can because body count Vietnam, right? Let's stack some bodies and turn the tide in the favor of South Vietnam, and we're going to be out of here before too long. In early November 1965, there's going to be an operation called up, uh, operation um, plan called Operation Hump. Operation Hump is about 15 miles northwest of Saigon, a little bit out in the countryside, but the idea of the operation at this point in the war is to go out and find the enemy and kill them. This is the same period of time. It's, in fact, just two weeks prior to another famous battle called the Battle of Idrang Valley. This is... The major battle in the the movie and the book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young. And if you remember from that book and from that movie, they call out, you know, what's your mission? And the mission is to find the enemy and kill them. That is absolutely a key point in the Vietnam War at this period of time. Go find them, stack some bodies so we can start to, you know, change that proportion of enemy available to enemy killed. And we can start to turn that tide in favor of South Vietnam. So Operation Hump goes from 5 to 8 November 1965, about 15 miles northwest of Saigon. At the time, it was called Saigon. And it's going to be a joint operation between the 173rd Airborne Brigade as well as some Australian units. They're going to helicopter assault into a few LZs, patrol around, again, find the enemy, kill them, come on home. They get out there, and for the first few days, it's relatively uneventful. I mean, as uneventful as sending a battalion through, you know, Viet Cong held territory can be, but nonetheless, relatively uneventful, not, not any major contact over that period of time until the morning of November 8th. The morning of November 8th, everything changes. And we're going to see one of the deadliest battles to this point in the Vietnam War that is going to you know, catch the attention of the military of the United States and might be a signal of what we're getting into, right? So many of these soldiers have been in fights thus far, but this is going to be a different story. Early on the morning of November 8th, one of the companies, Lawrence Joel's company, in fact, Specialist Lawrence Joel, is continuing to move around, continuing patrol in support of Operation Hump when they are attacked by a Viet Cong regiment. At the time of attack, this Viet Cong regiment, we're estimating around 1,200 soldiers. That's in comparison with the around 400 Americans and Australians. 1,200 Viet Cong opened fire at close range. They're dug in around a hill complex, a couple hills that are that are close to each other, and they're on, on a couple different slopes. The Americans in that lead element are outnumbered six to one. This is Lawrence Joel's company. Six to one outnumbered. Should be wiped out pretty quickly. That is untenable odds. You're not making it out of that ambush. The enemy attacks and in short order wipes out the entire first squad that Lawrence Joel is is working with. The entire squad is either killed or wounded. And without hesitation, Joel, a medic, drops to the ground and starts moving forward. So... We're going to come back to this a couple times in the story, but I just want to say I'm a big fan of these awards and these citations when it comes to saving lives, as opposed to taking lives. It's, it's w- with any medal of honor, it's really going to have to be one or the other. There's few exceptions. Lawrence Joel as a medic, as you can expect, is going to be the former. He's all about saving lives during Operation Hump on 8 November, 1965, Hits the ground, starts moving forward. Starts moving forward into the kill zone. Starts moving forward towards the enemy fire, right? Not back. Not not out of the way to one of the sides. The enemy fire was fiercest up front. That's where it took the highest number of casualties. That's where he's going. He starts crawling forward, starts treating wounded, and in short order, he's shot in the leg. So, Joel doesn't blink. He bandages his own wound. Now he's he's not quite as mobile as he once was, but continues to treat soldiers. The volume of fire is so intense that as he's continuing to provide care, he's having to lay on his side or lay in the prone position while he treats and holds plasma bottles overhead. So picture that. The only thing you can see are two soldiers laying on the ground as flat as they can get because bullets are impacting all around. And there's just one arm sticking up in the air, holding the plasma bottle stuck into a wounded soldier that's bleeding out that Joel is trying to keep alive. It's crazy. He continues to do this. He's treating soldier after soldier after soldier. He, he, as he is providing care to wounded soldiers, again, moving into the enemy fire, he's shot again in the hip. So now, two bullet wounds. At this point, I mean, heck, one bullet wound is sufficient to say it's time for you to get out of here and there would have been soldiers moving off the front line that were shot once that's not crazy especially in a position like this Joel can't get up and move can't run anymore it's not crazy for him to crawl back to the rear and maybe find another way to help but he doesn't this is this fight on 8 November is going to go on for 24 hours so we're talking about immediate actions getting on the ground and crawling forward but that's only a part of this that's impressive But to deal with two bullet wounds over that period of time and continue to treat others rather than get treatment yourself. Now, Joel is going to treat his wounds as best he can. But there's a lot of places he could go that would be safer, get him treated faster, get him out of the fight. But he doesn't stop. Despite the soldiers around him saying, stop going forward, stop looking for wounded, stop looking for killed, the jungle's thick. They don't know where their buddies are. There's people being lost in the jungle in the middle of this firefight. We're talking about a triple canopy jungle. One of the issues they have here on 8 November is that they can't get soldiers out when they're wounded. The canopy is so, so thick that even when a soldier is wounded and they need a medevac to survive, the helicopters can't get in. It's too thick. So, People are even saying, Joel, don't go out there. We can't, we can't hardly see where the enemy is, let alone where our friendlies are, let alone where the wounded are. But Joel didn't stop. He continued to crawl the battlefield under intense close-range enemy fire to find wounded soldiers, treat them, pull them, back into, pull them back into friendly lines to do his best to keep them alive. This is how close-range the fighting was. The Viet Cong aren't stupid. They are a worthy opponent in this conflict. And one of the things they know that is the Americans' advantage is going to be our firepower, our artillery, our air power that, they can, that we can bring to bear on Viet Cong forces. So what do they do? How do they remove that threat? They get close. They get as close as they can to American forces. Because it's easy to call artillery, easy to call an airstrike when the enemy is 200, 300, 500 meters away. When they're 10 meters away? Now you're risking shooting it. You're you're risking that round coming in on your own guys. You're risking that that bomb being dropped 10 meters too far one direction or the other. It's going to kill your squad instead of the enemy. You have to stop firing white phosphorus. You have to stop dropping napalm if the enemy is too close. So rather than back up and keep defensive positions, the Viet Cong charge. They get as close as they can to Americans. And what this means is a lot of this fighting on 8 November 1965 is going to involve hand-to-hand combat. You're going to have bayonet charges on both sides. You're going to have American soldiers fixing bayonets to push back and to keep at bay the Viet Cong attackers. That is the environment that Specialist Lawrence Joel is crawling around in, wounded, shot twice, at risk of being bayoneted at any point by an enemy right at their position. But he doesn't stop. He continues to treat 13 more soldiers before he runs out of medical supplies, goes through his entire kit, won't stop until it's empty. And when it is empty, he comes across a soldier with what we call a sucking chest wound. There's gonna be some sort of wound in his abdomen or his chest that is, and, and with his, um, at least with his lungs, and you have to seal it in one way or another. Joel finds a plastic bag that he might've been using for treating another soldier, pulling some, pulling some equipment out of. He uses that plastic bag to seal the chest wound of that soldier. He's out of equipment, but finds equipment to keep that guy alive. Joel's resupplied and spends the rest of the fight crawling around, providing encouragement, keeping guys alive as best he can during this, one of the deadliest battles to date during the Vietnam War. Towards the end of the 24-hour fight, 24 hours, 24 hours, having been shot twice, at risk of the enemy bayoneting you while you crawl to a wounded soldier. Think about what that does to your head. Think about the pain that you're dealing with for 24 hours. Joel was shot right away. At the end of the 24-hour fight, as the engagement was dying down, this battle, Operation Hump, would cost 49 American lives and two Australian lives. Again, one of the deadliest fights to date in the Vietnam War. To that point in the Vietnam War. Joel was finally evacuated. He protested his own medical evacuation for a long time, but as the fight is dying down, they finally said, enough's enough. Get out of here. Go get treated. He was flown to a couple different hospitals, treated, and would survive the war. And on March 9th, 1967, President Johnson awarded Specialist Lawrence Joel the Medal of Honor, making him the first living black American soldier to receive that award since 1898.